Hey, everybody. This is Chris Joseph, along with Josh Gertler from Oive LA. Thank you for listening to us. Um, we are blessed to have Rick Keating, um, architect Rick Keating. I'm gonna I'm gonna read his bio, um, but I will say I could just introduce you as a legend in in the architectural circles. But let me let me make it more formal than that. Um, Rick Keating graduated from UC Berkeley with significantly high honors that propelled him to work for SOM in Chicago. The youngest person in the firm's history to be named full partner, he created the Houston office and then the Los Angeles office. After 23 years at SOM, he formed Keating Architecture and has since completed a wide range of projects that include office, housing, mixed-use urban centers, and master plans for existing communities and new cities. Each project is an opportunity for learning and exploring new technologies, for simplifying and clarifying intents, and ultimately for shaping architecture collaboratively with clients and consultants. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us, Chris and Rick. We are um, excited that you are with us today, and we want to uh, ask you about some of your work. Um, tell us what led you to Los Angeles, led you to the architecture field, and and tell us how Los Angeles has changed in the years that you've been working as an architect here. Well, if I, if I could take the second uh, phrase of your first question <laughs> to start with. Uh, it's it, it's a bit of an odd track for me to go from what I thought I was going to do. Uh, when I was at Berkeley, I was under the tutelage and working as a teaching assistant for a guy named Spiro Kostov. And Spiro was an eminent architectural historian uh, who trained directly under Ben Scully at Yale. And that's the kind of gold standard of architectural history in the U.S. And Spiro had high ambitions for me and arranged for me to go to an excavation in Greece for a year uh, to study and basically do a lot of drawings for the uh, team over there. And after that, I came back and I told him that I wanted to do my thesis on tall buildings, which was kind of a, a I didn't realize at the time, a bit rude to, to do that because he was a, a very much of a classicist and had done his work in Ravenna. And uh, but I said, no, Spiro, I think that the, the role of architecture, which now this goes on to some of the other questions we'll talk about, has a great deal to do with the, the city. And the city is the, the largest cultural uh, thing that we have to do with in our profession that, that reflects the path of man and the culture of mankind. And this, these buildings that we're building are, are the imagery and they are the, the bricks in the wall, so to speak, of one at a time to create a whole, a whole character of a place that people identify with. And he turned to a colleague of his at, at Berkeley, who was a former dean at MIT, uh, and, another, and I was also TAing for him, and Dr. John Burchard. And Burchard had been the professor when he was at MIT of a bunch of the SOM partners uh, in the generation ahead of me uh, at SOM. And uh, Bertrand said, well, young man, we can get you a job at SOM in Chicago. They just finished doing the Hancock building and they're about to do the Sears Tower. Y'all, you go back there and, and uh, spend 18 months and learn everything you need to know about tall buildings and come back to Cal and, and, and do your PhD. And so uh, in my little Volkswagen, I traveled across the country in 
in the summer of 1968. And if you remember, that was a pretty interesting year of politics and activity on the Berkeley campus and turned into a year of interesting political activity in the city of Chicago. So I just literally rode along with the uh, the crowd and, and ended up uh, deeply involved in in the city of Chicago because of some of those those issues that trans transformed from Berkeley to Chicago during that time. So that's what took me to architecture. Uh, what happened along the way was that I got deeply entrenched in working uh, within, within SOM, uh, which had primary offices in San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, but Chicago ran the show. And Chicago as a city, again, let's go back to that concept in a minute, uh, is, as you know, called the city of big shoulders and, and a place of great urbanity and great history of, of movements and, and concern about housing, concern about big buildings, concern about transit. And, and throughout its own history was pivotal to the, to the Western evolution of the, the United States through its, its, its uh, connection to where the, the middle of the breadbasket of the United States was created and transformed transit-wise through the city of Chicago and on to the East Coast and the West Coast. So there's, there's interesting history there. But uh, I was in Chicago uh, during that time for about eight years, completely fell away from the idea of doing this doctorate degree in architectural history, which Spiro never forgave me for. <laughs> but during that time, I fell under the um, guidance of a guy named Bruce Graham, who was the driving partner of the firm. And he had established a relationship with um, a developer in Texas who was just starting out named Jerry Hines. And Hines had an idea that, that he, all of his buildings that he wanted to do at the time is the very first project he did was with SOM uh, called One Shell Plaza in Houston that he wanted to have all the teams uh, there in Houston so that they could participate in dialogue about them, mechanical engineering, real estate, uh, site planning, everything else. So Bruce asked me to pick up after eight years in Houston and locate uh, myself and, and build an office in Houston, Texas around this one client, which forced me into a kind of a funnel of working uh, for the development community right off the bat. And Heinz today is a huge organization uh, and still a preeminent uh, American developer uh, and one that, that loved and, and respected the influence of high quality design on all of his projects. So I was very fortunate to, to be forced into a specialty almost, working with people for their investments and working within the scale of very large projects uh, and, and under the aegis of of not only SOM, but also some of these developers that from, from Heinz went on to become Tremel Crow and Rob McGuire and a few others. So what year did you come to Los Angeles? I came to Los Angeles in 1986. So you've seen a lot in, uh, let me see if I can do math. That's 36 years. Is that right? I don't, I can't count that high anymore. <laughs> about right. <laughs> 36 years in Los Angeles. What have yeah. you seen over the decades for the betterment of the city and also to the detriment of the city? 
first of all, let's let's establish the premise of Los Angeles as, as a unique city in America for its, first of all, it's the second largest city in the country, we all know. But its uniqueness has a lot to do with the sprawl and, and with the character that sprawl is underlying the character of uh, the automobile. And at the time that SOM and me, by that time I was a partner in the firm, uh, felt that we should have a significant presence in the city of LA as well as San Francisco. It had to do with the perceived, and I don't believe correct, but that's probably because I'm a native of San Francisco, <laughs> the, the decline of San Francisco and the potential growth of Los Angeles, which was, was fueled largely over the significant impact of Asian investment in, in America at the time, primarily Japanese. And we all had ambitions to tie the, what's the word they use, the, the Pacific Rim? Uh, you remember, we don't even use that word anymore, but back in that time, that was the, the driving bumper sticker for describing uh, a group of, of activities around, around Asia and the United States, with Los Angeles being the American capital of the Pacific Rim business. And so in the mid-80s, that was a very preeminent aspect to what was predicted to be the next New York on the West Coast, as we all came here and you, Chris, lived here, but uh, that was driving SOM's decision to send me here and, and create the office. So I think that was, um, that's kind of an interesting thing to look back on in terms of our discussion as we look forward. Well, you got here in the mid eighties, LA was a, a whole lot different back then. Yeah, it really was. Um, Tom Bradley was the mayor. The Dodgers were doing great. <laughs> um, it it still was a city that had what I would perceive from a basically if you think of an architectural career set it, set in in uh, in the premise that I originally wanted it to be and what SOM's role in in uh, activity in, in American cities um, Los Angeles was not your first choice for being a high rise architect and uh, Bruce really believed that that would change. And he wanted me here to be uh, his his person on the ground in in uh, leading SOM into that next future. I don't think that ever realized itself. Uh, I look at the skyline of LA and and I think of it positively from my memories. And having grown up in California uh, with my grandmother lived here in Southern California, I knew it well from that perspective. It never did reach the. Uh, the impact on a on a high rise building cluster of density that we know in Chicago or New York um, or in, uh, some of the other uh, significant cities. So it's it's uh, it started out with that that premise during those times, but in a way, I don't think it quite reached that. Rick, did it not reach that potential because of the sprawl and the geographic? Um, uh, structure of the city of Los Angeles or is it because of the political will and the governance of Los Angeles that it didn't reach that potential you describe as being kind of a next New York? I, I believe it's most of that, um, Josh, but I think that um, the sprawl had happened and was embedded. It wasn't going to stop. I remember reading a story one time about housing uh, housing project out near uh, 
uh, extreme north of, of the city in Palmdale somewhere where the young kids were all excited about moving into their new house that their parents had bought for them and they turned the taps at the sink, the kitchen sink and the water didn't come out. And I thought that is really interesting. You cannot get the systems of the city to stretch that far. And that was sort of a symbol of that. Um, but yes, we, we, on, we all know the issues of sprawl. I think we've defined it as Los Angeles as how far we could possibly go. And we really can't physically go beyond where we are uh, given the issues of, of water service and electrification and things of that nature, but not just, just the general issues of, of circulation um, and driving and moving. So I, I think our movement among each other in, in an urban environment has reached a limit. Uh, and I, I feel very strong that that's reality. Um, with regard to the political realities, um, I'm not sure that these times that we're living through with climate change is basically on my mind. Uh, I'm desperately worried that that's such a big issue to resolve. I, I kind of worry that our democracy, a, a system of democratic politics is able to, to deal with that. Uh, if we were we were in a um, uh, kind of a different system of, of leadership, which none of us want, but let's assume we're all working underneath the Chinese government, uh, we probably could solve climate change. So that's our dilemma. Um, how do we how do we evolve these cities growing to the degree that they run out of room to grow any further for one reason or another? and do it underneath the uh, political leadership that we've had since the mid eighties, which when you think about the, the people that have, we've had as mayors and, and others, there has not been that kind of a leadership that, that could figure out a way to, to live within the democratic system and still guide us all to making some tough choices. And I think that's the most interesting thing about Los Angeles right now. I'm not quite sure how we're gonna solve it. And the three of us, are, are very active in this concern, I know, and all of our, our colleagues in our industry. Uh, but it's it's a big open question and quite, quite frightening, frankly, when you think about it. I want to go back to one more question I have about the mid-80s. When you came to Los Angeles in 86, that was before Metrorail mm. had been built. I think that construction started about 87, 88, something like that, if I remember correctly. So the, basically, there was, other than buses, there was no no rail system whatsoever. That's obviously changed now. How do you think that's changed the city? Well, I like to put it in the, in the uh, characteristics of being surrounded in that, my experience of it, and between Chicago and Houston and, and Los Angeles. And here we are with Chicago where all of us went to the loop on the bus, not on a transit system, but on a bus, number 36. And uh, loved it, except, you know, in the wintertime, you had those, those issues. But basically, nobody really, except very, very few, drove cars to downtown uh, Chicago. And Houston today still has no transit to speak of that's worth anything. So Los Angeles is kind of in the middle of that. And it's exciting that we've committed to the kind of transit we have. Um, obviously, we all know the history of 
Mr. Huntington, who lives next door to me here, um, and what he attempted to do in the turn of the century. And, and uh, it's too bad all that went away because that would have been a golden moment for the city of Los Angeles to build upon what, what he created. Um, but I know that this, I'm not sure about you all, but uh, um, most of the people that I know are employees are using the transit system. I think that's created uh, a resurgence of business activity in downtown because employers have to look to uh, draw their employees from a wider range than if, but prior to the transit system. But all that's been kicked in the head because of the COVID situation. And, and now with decline of office buildings in downtown, uh, I'm not sure where we're going with that. So LA is very, very tender at this moment, but uh, many, many people who lead businesses do not, do not ride transit. And you know we all share this wonderful client that forces himself to ride transit, whether he needs to or not, just because he believes in it so much. And uh, speaking of Wally, of course, um, but I, I think that the, we're at a very um, nascent point in the urban form forced by issues of transit in the city of Los Angeles. We wish we were Chicago. We wish we were New York. Thank God we're not Houston. But we're kind of not even halfway there yet. So, Rick, you talk about Los Angeles being in a very precarious place. You talk about climate change. You talk about the evolution of the transit system. But this conversation is incomplete without the subject of housing yeah. and affordable housing, homelessness being probably the most gargantuan issue of, of its time in California, certainly. Um, why is affordable housing such a big issue in metropolitan areas in the United States? You design high rises that are both offices and homes. What practical solutions from your perspective might help move the needle on addressing quantity and affordability of housing in major metropolitan areas, particularly Los Angeles? Well, I always turn to my friends, Josh and Chris, on subjects of housing, because you all know much more about it than me, but my, my reactions about it uh, are, and I lived for a long time on, in Venice, uh, and we dealt with uh, issues of housing 10, 15, 20 years ago um, on the beach. And I think that, that two things that come to my mind. One is I believe we should have a carrot and stick kind of philosophy about homelessness. Um, I, I believe that the larger populace has every right to say, no, the public spaces belong to all of us and they cannot be dominated by either the wealthy, which is the old story that we had about coastal access, or the non-wealthy. That, that's an equivalency that I think is there. But uh, because we are uh, democratic in nature, uh, we have to provide. And you can't be here, but here it is. We want, we want uh, people not to live in situations where they don't have uh, uh, facilities to take care of, of things and connect to the sewage system and water and, and health issues. But I, I think that our traditional housing, well, first of all, we participate in housing from a bank shot of saying, well, we're building in our, in, in our project, there were chair, um, you know, 400 units of housing. It'll trickle down. Don't worry about it. It's got value. It's probably true, but I don't think that really tickles our souls in terms of our, our responsibilities. 
But I also believe that when you look at the housing created by many architects and, and others, their average cost per unit is $150,000. And I, I think, well, wait, we can do better than that. We can be, we're smarter than that. Why do we, why do we allow that? And why do we want to ghettoize? In other words, put all of them in a little uh, side part of a rail channel somewhere out in the valley or any place we might see them. And I, you drive around, you see acres of empty trailers, for instance, that are perfectly reasonable housing units. Um, there are ways of, of, of developing even campsites with uh, tent-like accommodations that have all the sewage treatment and everything else we need to do. So what I'm trying to say by that is not to put all poor people or anything like that in campsites, but I think a, a larger diversity of reaction to how we house individuals with dignity can take all kinds of forms, but we must do it. We must force it into being by saying no here, yes there. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, what What's your vision of Los Angeles over the next 20 years? Where are we going? Where are we headed? Uh, uh, yeah, I saw that question when you sent it to me, and I think it's a very interesting, tough one. Um, it isn't Blade Runner, um, but I do think there's there is thing or there are things that are happening that are very exciting. Um, I'm now thinking of Elon Musk and some of the activities around figuring out systems that in a, in a crazy guy like that can do. But what if the big the big force behind the mobility in in Los Angeles, which has given it its definitive character in the 50s through the present times defined by freeways. And what if the idea of transit as we know it um, is surpassed by another form of, of communication uh, or, 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 or moving around movement systems by delivering uh, objects and, and Amazon things through drones, through possibly movement of people uh, beyond just surface transit um, and much more. It's a lovely city to live in. We all live in gardens in LA, really basically it's a garden city. When you think about the Ebenezer Howard phase of, of architectural history. And when you talk to people who don't want to live in downtown LA, they all say, well, why do I want to live in downtown, downtown LA when I have my lovely garden in Glendale or in the hills or this or that? It's, there isn't, there is another aspect to the Los Angeles's um, urbanization, which has to do with gardening and homes, single family homes. So what if that whole system starts to change around the services that can be created by drones and uh, a new circulation system? I believe that's the real future. Uh, I live in a situation that uh, I'm very lucky uh, where I have a large garden and a super large garden right next door, the Huntington. Um, but during COVID, I realized how pleasant it was, how much I enjoyed just being here. I can see the mountains on one window, and I can walk in the Huntington another time. And, and, uh, and I realized that many, many houses, even small houses and things all throughout the city are, are pleasant to be in as with your family. And I think that's when you read the, the CBRE-type statements through Roger Vincent's articles about, oh, don't worry, downtown's coming back. 
you know, all the businesses are recreating uh, spaces to be six feet apart and, and it'll all be back to normal. I'm not a believer of that. I, I truly think that we may see no new buildings needed for officing in downtown LA for quite a while. And maybe many of those, those tired office buildings um, that we all know about, the B and C quality buildings, are ripe for being converted to residential. And conversion of existing buildings is the right thing to be doing environmentally and not building new buildings all the time, especially in office world. Which is sort of what happened on Main Street and Spring Street. Yep. Yeah. Right now I'm thinking of Union Bank Tower in downtown on the freeway. That's a, a, a lovely building, I think, architecturally, uh, but it's not a very good office building. It hasn't been partly because of its floor plate size. And uh, its value is decreased because of its lack of value in office. So developers that I know and talk with, I keep trying to steer them towards thinking about it as a residential tower because you could do that. Rick, tell us, uh, the, the, it's an interesting perspective, um, uh, both about the kind of urban air mobility, as I think they call it, about moving through the air. But there's a lot of discussion about work from home and going back to the office. And we're in this sort of gray area in between where everybody's waiting for the new normal to emerge when in fact we are in the new normal. There's a lot of discussion about um, moving away from <clears throat> single family homes and and creating recreating communities of, of older generations where you have multi-generational families living in in a, in a shared area with some private spaces and some some shared spaces and that uh, fabric of the family got pulled apart as uh, over the last 50 75 years so as an architect who designs homes what might that look like in in, in the future whether you're it's an adaptive reuse of, a, of an old high-rise like the one you mentioned what might that look like for in the future where people are working from home, they're sharing um, uh, some of the facilities with their extended family, the concept of community and family is is, is woven back together. Um, what, what do you think that would look like from a design standpoint? Well, I believe it's, first of all, I think it'd be helpful at the going to the larger political leadership issue wouldn't it be wonderful on the carrot and stick notion to say no new development on raw land? That just automatically starts to, I mean, we, the demographics are there to drive density. And especially if you say no, no density can occur on, on existing raw land, we will make progress one way or the other. Is there political will to do that or does that work in democracy? I, I don't know, but that would be an ideal. Living in Pasadena, as I do, or San Marino, wherever, the suburb of Pasadena, um, I look to this city as an interesting model because it has enough um, drivers like Caltech and Huntington Hospital or Arts Center and things like that within the structure. Uh, and yet it's still a garden city with open spaces that are mutually shared in pretty great ways. Uh, and it's all doable from a circulation standpoint. So in some ways, I think Pasadena is an interesting model and always has been. But the other aspect of Pasadena that I'm really fascinated by is that, as, as we all know, it was created 
as a, a senior living community by people from Chicago <laughs> a long time ago. And, and the demographics of senior living is an interesting driver all into itself, especially when you say, well, it isn't just about uh, sunrise homes and, and people living in eight foot wide bedrooms. Um, why can't you think about seniors living with dignity in the same way we th worry about homeless people living with dignity? And what does it take? And um, we've all, I'm sure, experienced our own families and thinking about, you know, you know, my dad was uh, got ill in the end of his life. He lived in 96, but I kept thinking about what would I design for him? And what would I design for myself? You know, we all talk about if we, you know, I, I think we could pretty easily conclude it would be nice to open the wall here and walk out into a garden. It doesn't have to be a large garden. And I don't think we need a lot of space, really, and maybe a one-bedroom size of apartment. Um, we probably all would like our technology. Um, there are other issues about lifestyle that are that don't take a lot of room, but do take a little care in terms of design. So you start with a very large, growing senior community, which includes all of us guys, <laughs> and and then think through all the way to homeless and everybody in between, and organize it in such a way that you can go to the museums, you can get to places without having to sit in endless car situations. And I, th I think that would be uh, a path that I would would make sense to me. Let's step back from Los Angeles for a second. Um, we hear architects talk about form versus function. What's more important and why? I think architecture has unique uh, touches. In, it, it is an art in, in its own way. And I think those that, that participate in architecture uh, for reasons of form uh, do create beautiful, but those of us that are good at it, uh, create lovely forms. Let's just say Disney Concert Hall is the top, top, top of the top. And is it a better concert hall than Berlin? Who knows? You know, I'm not sure about that in terms of its total function, but it sure as hell turned out to be a great place and an important aspect of Los Angeles. But I believe that our profession of architecture has focused way too much on that as the divining idea of what architecture is about. And, and I think it's, um, it's interesting to, to put architecture in parallel with the law or medicine, for instance, to other professions and the value that the medicine, medical community and the doctors are to our society is very significant. And we, we, we cannot live without them. And even the canon of the law and what it really represents, we can't really deal with uh, many of the activities we try to do without the assistance of the legal committee. Whereas architecture has sort of sold itself as the, the so-called black cape architect, you know, that, that comes in and designs a shape and form and thinks he's uh, is born on third base and hit a triple or something, you know, it just, um, I, I think we haven't done ourselves as a profession a great value in terms of what we, what we bring to the equation. And I think what's missing there is that whole idea that we started this conversation about, about the, the city. We are, and you all are part of this, we in the real estate community are, are dealing with this fabulous fabric that we create called a city. And it is the most significant culture of 
cultural thing we build as society. And we need to think about it that way, first and foremost, not uh, an individual building. An individual building like Disney Concert Hall can certainly make a huge impact. But right across the street from the Disney Concert Hall, same architect, third-rate building. Really. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I've also learned over the decades that function can be defined in many ways. Who is it supposed to function for? Um, And I think about the West Side Pavilion, which is now, I guess, the Google headquarters or soon to be Google headquarters in West L.A. And I always thought that the West, I don't know if you guys have been in West Side Pavilion or not, but I always thought it functioned much better if you were a retailer. As a consumer, you'd have to walk very far to find an escalator, an elevator, a staircase, and it was very frustrating. But if you're a retailer, I totally get why you would want that. You want people walking by your shop, so. Yeah. Yeah, the, the form form and function thing. I, I just simply believe that the profession needs to be re, rejiggered a bit to focus on, on uh, issues that are more valuable to the larger aspects of society than just an interesting shape. And to be frank about it, I mean, I, I do think historically that Los Angeles has been um, blessed, and I use that word positively, with, with really talented architects that do that part of architecture very, very well. Frank being top of the list, uh, Tom Main, others. But to the detriment of some of the uh, main aspects of, of city building, I'm not sure that there's been a significant contribution. So let's just take the LA River, for instance. Frank's last idea of the LA River was to ignore it and build a park over the top of it and bind the communities together and forget the river. That was peculiar. Yeah, I agree. Me too. So, Rick, what architectural themes and forms are in Los Angeles's future? Assume you're the king for a day. You get to choose what the future of Los Angeles's architecture should look like. What would you What would you do? Can I expand on that just a little bit? Uh, you, of course. You've heard do. me say this before, Josh, but none of us that knew the real career of Robert Moses have a lot to admire. It was a rough way of dealing with New York, but it changed New York positively. And, and I believe that the political leadership of, of let's say, Karen Bass is elected. Uh, I would love to see her eliminate it might you know defund the police is was a dumb phrase and it got everybody in trouble but i'm not sure eliminating the planning department would be in the same equation and and what if the idea that that uh, um, the current mayor had about making a design leader rather than select somebody like he did um put a robert moses with better t- better uh, uh directives or something in a leadership position combining design and planning, and then stepped down into each of the neighborhood councils and placed a person who worked for that leader in each one of those councils to make sure things as were discussed as they need to be in, in the neighborhoods or, or were, were guided towards 
reality rather than all the craziness that goes on and, and circles that we go into. So I think there's an interesting potential for restructuring uh, people in, in our larger dialogue in a, in a way that let's find, let's, we, we go out for police commissioners and we ask everybody in the United States, who's the best police person in, in, in New York, basically when Bratton came, or school commissioners. But we don't do that with planning or design. We get, you know, some average people and then we get all these characters underneath them that are, that are, well, you know them better than I, so I probably shouldn't say so, but you know what I'm saying. I think. Um, so I think there's a, a potential structural change that would be pretty interesting if we all got our, our, our shoulder to that wheel. Um, with regard to the, the uh, city itself, uh, like I said, I think there's, there's ways of rethinking it, but I, I'm so passionate about this notion of climate and the issues we have to deal with and the very fact that, that our buildings that we build, new buildings are, are huge carbon problems. And we just don't need to be building new buildings. We have plenty of buildings to rethink. And let's get creative about rethinking them and sticking them together and rethinking how they're used and what the occupation is like. You know, we're, we're, uh, Chris was talking about the West Side Mall. I mean, the, the, the malls of America are ripe for rethinking everywhere. A whole darn country is filled with them. And the whole, every city across the United States is filled with these B and C office buildings that could be completely rethought. And Los Angeles is, uh, could easily lead the way with the right kind of political leadership and, and uh, you know, building it. The, the other thing about Los Angeles that's kind of fascinating, and again, reflecting on the differences between Chicago and somewhat Houston too. During COVID, as we uh, scattered and, and went home and, and, and made all of our, our offices uh, out of the lovely Bradbury building, <laughs> I found out that it was easy to hire architects to work for us in other cities. And if I was looking to do somebody about a curtain wall, uh, sophisticated architectural kind of design work um, in high rise, it's easier to find people in Chicago all day long than there is in, in LA. It's just a different culture of architecture between those two cities. And it's actually, they're less expensive to hire in Chicago. So why wouldn't I do that? And hook them together on Zoom meetings. And the only problem is all these Zoom meetings, we never know how tall that guy is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, it works pretty well. So I, I, there, there are ways that I think have come out of this, this cultural shift we've gone through that could be really positive. I, I guess I want to throw a question out, maybe to end this discussion. One that was not on our list that we sent you, Rick, uh, but that has to do with water. I mean, Rick, you've, brought, you've rightfully brought up climate change a few times, huge issue of our times. We're seeing drought, and it's not like we've never seen drought in Southern California. I mean, I can remember countless times. I'm sure Josh can, too, when we were growing up. But this time, it seems different. Yeah, I agree. And I think, and I'm going to include myself in this, I, we all sort of assume, well, okay, it'll rain next year. It'll rain a lot next year. But what if it doesn't? How does that factor into how the city grows? Yeah, I, Chris, I think that's a very interesting subject and, and I wanted to expand it a little bit. Um, I don't know if you followed some of this, but I, I lived in Utah for four years and my family, some of my family was from there, so I knew it pretty well. You remember when the Owens Lake dried up, the, the, the issues of pollution 
of the Owens Valley were among many of the other problems, but that's a big deal. And luckily there weren't too many people living there. Well, it turns out that the next big dry up is the Great Salt Lake. And the potential for uh, air quality issues, let alone all the water issues that come related to that are huge and could completely truncate any growth that's great salt, that Salt Lake City has. And more importantly, it's, it's, it's related to all of the snow that's created on the Wasatch Range because of the lake effect. And when that changes, all the ski resorts go away. All the economics based on all of that snowbird, et cetera, et cetera, changes. And they don't think they can sustain the growth that the city's had for a long time, let alone it is facing serious decline and terrible air quality. And we never think of Salt Lake City as air quality or a lack of growth. It's, it's really interesting how one change that's right in front of us, and we have all experienced here in California, is, is, is about to happen. That's really dramatic. And I agree with you that, that um, this is a different one. I don't know what it is, but I, you know, I just think that, that we may be looking at a limitation to, to uh, our future. And even in LA, I, I, I never believe that Phoenix is going to be a place to live. And might tell my kids, and don't even bother thinking about it. It's, it's not, not going to be a place for you. And, and all and the fame of Palm Springs will be affected in, in serious ways, I believe. Uh, but we're going to have to think really hard about how, how we have access to water in Southern California. I don't know how it's going to do anything other than impede growth. Impede and maybe even change. I mean, you were talking earlier about people enjoying their gardens. Yeah. You know, that might lessen too. Yeah. Which may affect uh, density when you think about it, because and sharing it, something a little less, more precious, and it's just more valuable. It, you know, I, I taught one more thing. I um, I love going to Catalina, my favorite place on, in California, and I go there a lot because I have a little boat that takes me out there. And um, when Cabrillo first came to California in 1524, he came up on the coast of Catalina. And I go there today, and except for a few things, I can look at it exactly as it was in 1524. Mm. And all the density has gone away, and I'm out there in a very kind of small environment, and the water is what it always has been. The undersea life is what it has been, et cetera. Um, but you look at that, that landscape, and you realize that is the true California. And it's it's a fascinating thing. But to get there, I have to go through Orange County. And Orange County is 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 scary in its way of being what it is. And we cannot not ignore this. It's overly white. It's overly Republican. It's anti anything politically that we would all subscribe to. But it is no homeless. It is very wealthy. And it's got all the positive nature. And it's, it's an engine of difference. That's, that's worth comparing to our city in Los Angeles and trying to understand what it is. It's, I taught a class one time at Stanford and I kept looking at Stanford and Berkeley side by side and thinking, my God, this is different. <laughs> and I, and I, I think it's important to realize that those of us that live in LA have to realize that there's engines of other alternatives that are right on our doorstep that, that are, are, are there. 
And maybe there's something to be learned from them. Maybe there's not. I'm not sure. Oh, it's quite true. I mean, I live in Santa Monica, and you can tell the difference when you cross the border on yeah. Sentinella. You start seeing tents in Los Angeles. Santa Monica restricts tents. You rarely see them. Yeah. Not like they don't have a homeless problem. They do in Santa Monica, but it's you do not see the tents. Um, so, yeah, we can learn even from our immediate neighbors. True. Rick, thank you so much for being a part of this. Well, it's really, really, really enjoyed talking with you. We should yeah, talk but, more, even when it's not uh, as formalized as this. <laughs> Absolutely, we we could spend hours talking to you about uh, design and architecture. I, I I could nerd out and go into this, go deep and down this rabbit hole with you. So thank you for the time that you've given us. Good. I look forward to doing that offline anytime. Thanks, Rick.